Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Well, my name is Kyle Burkholder. I'm a pastor here and one of the elders that has the great privilege of uh, serving this community as we go about our mission. And today, uh, we are going to uh, jump in with Jesus as he's walking through hostile territory. And, and what we really have today as we jump in is sort of four almost seemingly disconnected uh, little ideas, but that are all tied together with one main thread. And so we're going to go through Jesus talking about trials and about forgiveness. He's going to tell a parable about servants, and then we're going to uh, kind of encounter a situation with lepers and, and how they respond to him. And through all of these things, the tie, I'm just going to give the ending away. So, you know, spoiler alert, the tie here is humility, that humility is the way Humility is the path. Humility is the way that we walk with Jesus. It's both the way we find Jesus and the way we walk with Jesus. And so we're just going to jump into Luke chapter 17 uh, and get right to it. And the Bible says this. It says, he, Jesus said to his disciples, hard trials and temptations are bound to come, but too bad for whoever brings them on. Better to wear a concrete vest and take a swim with the fishes, I like that phrase, give, uh, than give even one of these dear little ones a hard time. Be alert, Jesus says. If you see your friend going wrong, correct him. If he responds, forgive him, even if it's personal against you and repeated seven times through the day and seven times he says, I'm sorry and I won't do it again, forgive him. And the apostles came up and said this to Jesus, to the master. They said, give us more faith. But the master said, you don't need more faith. There is no more or less in faith. If you have a bare kernel of faith, say the size of a poppy seed, you could say to this sycamore tree, go jump in the lake, and it would do it. So we're going to stop there. We have another half of this passage to get to. We're going to stop there and attack those two first. It starts with this idea that you can expect trials. Jesus is saying, life is going to be hard. You are going to be facing trials. You will go through grave challenges. This will not always be easy. You should expect that. And he says, but be careful, don't lead others into stumbling. It's in essence saying, look, life is hard enough without us blindly leading each other into temptation, each other into sin. And we've uh, traditionally in in the church, not this church, but the church, we've made this sort of comically legalistic. No one can have a glass of wine with dinner because it might lead someone somewhere to have 14 glasses of wine with dinner. Therefore, that might be... a path to stumbling for someone, and so everyone should abstain from everything always. That's not what he's saying. Jesus, let's reframe it. Let let Jesus reframe it. Matthew chapter 7, what does Jesus say about how we treat others? In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. It's kind of the summary of how do we behave for others? How do we react to others? How do we interact with others? How do we do life with others? And Jesus goes, do for them what you would want them to do for you. And so if we reframe this idea about stumbling through Jesus' own words, what we gather is a, is a way of walking through life where we carry an other's first humility. We begin to think through their needs first. Similarly, we think through their struggles first. And so it may mean you don't need to have a glass of wine. We have a friend, uh, Steph and I have a friend, old friend, he's been sober for 12 years. We've had 
dozens of meals with him. Guess what we've never had with him? We've never said, hey, can I get you a drink? Because he doesn't need that. He doesn't want that. That would be leading him into a place that we know was a struggle and a temptation for him, and so we would never do that. And yet two weeks ago, we had a couple over, and we said, hey, can I pour you a glass of wine with dinner? And they said, sure, that's great, and we celebrate together. And so it's reading the situation and knowing the struggles and the sins and the temptations of others and having a Jesus worldview that says, I'm going to put you first and your life first and your struggles first, and I'm going to lift them up and go, what does this person need? Some might not need to have a glass of wine in front of them. That could be a big temptation. Others might not need a legalistic interpretation of the scripture because that's a temptation. And so we have to be willing to take a nuanced view of the way we go about life in order to love those around us best. So Jesus is saying, be mindful first of your brother and then of yourself. Think through the life of your sister, then yourself. And if you do that, odds are you're not going to have to put on a concrete vest and sleep with the fishes. Life is hard enough without dragging fellow believers into temptation. He moves from this idea really quickly into forgiveness. He goes straight from this idea about not dragging others into temptation into forgiveness, which is, I think, kind of beautiful, because how many times have we done that and been forgiven? And he, this whole idea of seven times, well, what if they sin against me seven times? Then you forgive them seven times. Other places will say seven times seven. Basically, just keep forgiving. And a lot of us run into this in practical, you know, we can assent to it in an intellectual basis. Yes, I understand that. Just keep forgiving. And then you run into it in a practical way with an actual friend or an actual loved one who just keeps crushing you. And you go, well, how does, how does that work? How do I work that out? I mean, this, this person is a sin factory. They're a relational destruction derby. What do I do? I would say you come back to Matthew 7. Now, there are ways we're not going to get into about how do you not enable something and how do you, you know, there, there's some actual like healthy relational boundaries that set. Those things are all real. But when it comes to forgiveness, withholding resentment in your heart, withholding judgment in your heart versus holding forgiveness and allowing something to let go, Jesus' words in Matthew 7 apply again. Do unto them what you would have them do unto you. Do to the person who keeps sitting against you what you would hope they would do for you, which is what? Because all of us have had our seasons of life where we've been a little sideways, where we've been the moral dumpster fire, when we've been uh, the people who have had a rough go of it, when we've been hurt people, because hurt people hurt people, we've had that season. And what do you want in that season when you just can't seem to get anything right, when you can't seem to get into a relationship without it falling apart? What do you want? No one has ever gone, I really would like full abandonment. I just want everyone to leave me and never be my friend again. I want my family to just walk away. I want my friends to swear me off. I just want, no, that's what I want. No one's ever said that. People say, gosh, it'd be really great if someone could show me some grace. I'm going through some tough stuff, or I'm really just struggling and stumbling through life. So how do we forgive someone seven times over if they just keep, you go, what would you want? How do you apply grace to another the way you would want it applied to yourself? Jesus would say, forgive them, work with them, walk with them, just like you would hope they would do for you. So then you have to carry a forgive again type of humility. Humility forgives. Forgive again is another level of humility. It's this person burning me again. I may need to put some boundaries in place, but I also need to make sure I forgive. If true humility considers the other first, then the purest form of that humility is probably repeat forgiveness because it's considering the other first, even when the other can't seem to consider you. This is what we see in Jesus on the cross. He shows us there's no limits to the bounds of his forgiveness, where you and I have out his ability to count at some level, 
you know, you just kind of go through how many do I have? I, I have so many behind me. How many more do I have in front of me? Moments of pride, moments of greed, moments of lust. So how many, I still have them. And knowing that, he still got on the cross in advance of my sin. He had a forgive and a forgive and a forgive again sort of mentality. It's a humility that you and I have to find a way to adopt. Because Jesus never looked at us and said, you know what? That's one too many mistakes. I think I'm out on you. Jesus never looked at you and said, after this one, I'm done. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. If we follow Jesus, then we begin to do what he did, which is to take on the pain of another. Forgiveness is absorbing the pain of another on their behalf. I'm willing to take on the pain of your sin and let it go. I'll absorb that for you. I'm letting it go so that we might be rightly reconciled. Even when the cost is personal and beyond what seems fair, I am willing to take that on because that's what Christ did for me. Here's the, the big surprise. Uh, it's not going to be fair. If you are a forgiver, and I would say that if you are a Christ follower, you should be a world-class forgiver. If you are someone who practices forgiveness, this sort of humble forgiveness, it will not be fair. Life will not turn out fair for you. It just won't. It will not be equitable. It will not be fair. The scales will not balance out. If you keep absorbing and forgiving, absorbing and forgiving, you're going to feel like you're taking more on than other people. And I would say that's the point. Grace isn't fair. Grace has never been fair. The grace that you and I received was not fair. Jesus didn't balance the scale. He obliterated it on our behalf. And so as Jesus' followers hear this, we get back into the story. We go, Jesus' followers are hearing this from Christ and they're just buckling under the weight of what he's asked them to do. A, don't lead other people to stumble. Be real careful. B, forgive. How often? Again. What about five times? Yes. How about seven? Guys, again. And they just sort of start buckling under the weight of this. You can, you can see it as you read through it. They're, they're looking at Jesus. They're going, Jesus, this is sort of impossible what you're asking us to do. You realize this. Consider others first. Give forgiveness after forgiveness after forgiveness know what other people's temptations are and like avoid, like how, how do I even know that? And then you can kind of hear this echo of them going, Jesus, you can't really expect us. And he just interrupts them like, oh yes, yes, yes I do. Guys, guys, guys. And the disciples sit there like, okay, fine. We'll do it, but you got to give us more faith. But they ask for more faith. They say, man, this seems like a lot. I don't know, Jesus. And he goes, guys, and you can see them look at each other and they get that little light in their eye like, I got an idea. It's like when a kid says, you know, you're like, finish your, finish your vegetables, finish your vegetables, finish your vegetables. And they get that light in their eye. They're like, we'll do it if there's ice cream after. And you're like, I can end you right now. You know, you kind of want, hey, I got some ice cream for you. And you just bring a bowl of green beans over. There's your ice cream. Um, that would be bad parenting. Don't do that. Um, maybe not. So they ask, Jesus, give us more faith. Twitchy politely responds, nah, I don't think so. No, you don't get more faith. There's no such thing as more faith. There's faith or not faith. There's faith or not faith. There's not more or less. It's just faith. You have it. And they kind of look at each other like, what is he, what, are you serious? Mustard seeds, poppy seeds, he takes a tiny little seed and he says, with someone with the tiniest little bit of faith can move a tree and tell it to jump in the lake and it will do it. You guys don't need more faith. You need something else. 
So then he tells a story, and then they unpack a situation. So the story goes like this. In, in, chap- in verse 7, it starts this way. Suppose one of you has a servant who comes in from plowing the field or tending the sheep. Would you take his coat, set the table, and say, sit down and eat? Wouldn't you be more likely to say, prepare dinner, change your clothes, and wait table for me until I finish my coffee, then go to the kitchen and have your supper? Does the servant get special thanks for doing what's expected of him? It's the same with you. When you've done everything expected of you, be matter of fact and say, the work is done. What we were told to do, we did. And then the scripture continues, and it happened as he made his way into Jerusalem that he crossed over the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, 10 men, all lepers, met him. They kept their distance, but raised their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And taking a good look at them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. They went. And while still on their way, they became clean. That is a miracle. And one of them, when he realized what he, that he was healed, he turned around and came back shouting his gratitude, glorifying God. He kneeled at Jesus' feet, so grateful. Couldn't thank him enough. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus said, we're not ten healed, where are the nine? Can none be found to come back and give glory to God except this outsider? And then he said to him, get up on your way. Your faith has healed and saved you. We go from them asking for more faith from Jesus to these seemingly unconnected ideas. Jesus tells this story, and then the situation gets unpacked. It doesn't seem to explain more faith, but I think it does. The servant story illustrates yet again a call to humility. Know why you're here. Know who you are and why you're here. For the disciples, they they didn't need more of anything. They needed to be who they were called to be. This is sneaky hard for us, too. We've grown up in a whole different culture than they have. We grew up in affirmation culture, in, in participation trophy culture. In I finished my vegetables, now where's my bowl of ice cream culture? And Jesus is saying, if you do a good day's work, all that is expected of you, and you do it well, why are you looking for a cookie or a pat on the back? You don't need more faith. What you need to know is who you are. You are the servants of the Most High King. And if you do what you were called to do, the reward is out there. The faith is, is you've been given all you need to do your job. So know who you are and why you're here. You're here to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. And when heavenly justice meets an unjust world, miracles happen. Lives are changed, hearts are set free. To see a tree jump in the lake is nothing compared to seeing a scoundrel turn into a saint by the grace of God. It's nothing. So he says, know why you're here. Practice a servant-minded humility. Keep your head down. Know why you're here. Then there's this situation with the lepers that sort of popped up here too. It says Jesus heals one of them. They won't get too close to him. They would have respected his space because they know that they're leprous and that they can't make him unclean. So they probably go from me to the third row or so. And they say, Jesus, can you heal us? And he goes, show yourselves to the priest. He doesn't say yes. He says, show yourselves to the priest. And as they make their way, Jesus keeps walking. And I'm, you know, he kind of winks like, watch this. And they're healed. And only one returns. Only one comes back. Only one finds the capacity for gratitude And in this part, we get to understand that Jesus is telling us, know who you are, servants, and know whose you are. Know to whom you belong. 
Jesus says only this outsider comes back. This is a shot fired at the traveling party, at the Jews around him. He says, look, this Samaritan, this person that's our enemy, is the only one who would come back and show gratitude for what I've done. The implication is those closest to me don't even show this kind of gratitude. The people who should know better live their lives ignoring the reality of God's presence. And while he says that to the Jews, I kind of feel like we could pull that one forward. And it's a temptation for us, too. To forget that we are God-breathed and God-created, that we are God-saved and God-redeemed, that we are God-purposed and God-secured. And we are then often the least likely to acknowledge the miracle of grace that has overtaken our lives. We live with the greatest temptation for any believer, and that is forgetfulness. The greatest temptation of modern life is forgetfulness, forgetting who you are and whose you are. We forget whose we are. We forget we were brought with a price. When we forget, we begin to start taking credit from the world. We begin to start seeing the world as if we own it instead of that we are owned by the Creator. We begin to lose our humility. The very things Jesus has been talking about, you have to have humility, we lose it. And pride jumps in to fill the void. And so then we have a temptation to take credit for our successes. And we have a temptation to ignore what is holy in our midst. And we have a temptation to start soaking up glory at every turn. We think we need to be served. We consider ourselves first. We become entitled. Think if there's ten lepers. One turns around to show gratitude. And the other nine went, huh, about time. We become entitled. Entitled living is just me first living. Entitled living is just the opposite of that Matthew 7, 12 verse to consider others first. It's just going, I treat myself the way I want to be treated and treat others however it comes. You want to know when you're living entitled, you say, I don't know if I'm entitled. I don't know how to judge this. I don't know how to diagnose this of myself. When long lines just kill you, that's when you know you're entitled. When you grumble and complain and moan, when you run into a line in your life, that's entitlement kind of bubbling up. The other day I went to get uh, lunch. I had missed breakfast, and I had a meeting like at 12.30, and then I had another meeting at 2, and another one at 4, and I had elder meeting, and, and I had all these things, and I was just like, I, this is my only window. I got to eat something. And I'm near McDonald's, and I'm like, you know what? Let's just go. Let's get this. All in. All the calories. Let's go. And I come around the corner, and you kind of can't see the drive through line from the direction I was showing, and I pull around the building to see the line, and there's not one line anymore. There's two lines, right? There's two lines, and they're both 612 cars long. <laughs> and I get into one of the lines for about eight-tenths of a second, and then I mumble something that's, you know, some vague swear word of some sort, just, <laughs> and I pull out, and I'm like, I just won't eat. Like, Don jerks, you know? It's not their fault. You show up at Chick-fil-A, you go to Chick-fil-A on 20, there you, you pull up, and there's, there really are 612 cars in the line. It's literally how many cars there are, and you just kind of go, well, it can't be that good. It just can't. You get in the grocery store line, you, you start grumbling. I mean, could they not open another checkout? Is that so hard? 75 items in the express lane. You go over to Starbucks, they always have a line. Drive-thru, they started doing drive-thru, they always have a line now. And then you're grumbling, you're like, guys, it's $5, why are we buying five, just get out of the line, $5 coffee, I want a $5 coffee, you're you're dumb for paying this much, but I really need it. (laughs) 
school pickup lines. You show up like one minute later than you did the day before, and all of a sudden you're back on the street. Sunday station lines, that guy is printing money. <laughs> they were open for the, it was four degrees outside, and there's a line into the street just printing money. Get your driver's license renewed. Oh, the BMV. I went, I had to change plates out. And they didn't even have a line anymore. There's not even a line. It's just the whole thing is taken up and there's chairs in the lobby and you don't, it's just Thunderdome. You go, what, what is the system here? They're like, we don't know. They're just choosing us at random. It's just, may the odds be ever in your favor and you just sit there and you wait. Here's my hot take. I think lines are really good for your soul. I think long lines are really good for your soul because they knock us off of our entitled perch. We forget that we are created things and that God is in charge and we start thinking we deserve to be first, we deserve to be faster, we deserve to have what we want to have when we want to have it. And so here is my challenge to you. Next time you see a long line, you're on Wooster, you don't even like coffee, doesn't matter, and you drive by and you see that Starbucks line snaking around the building, here's my challenge. Just go get in the line. Get right in the line. Doesn't matter where you're going. Dad, we're going to be late for my soccer game. Doesn't matter. Get in the line. Get in the line. When you get up to the window, when they say, hi, can I take your order? Say, no. I don't even like coffee. My pastor said this would be good for me, so I'm just going to be here. <laughs> they won't know what to do. It doesn't matter. Just roll your window up. When you come around to the front and they're like, did you have the whatever the person behind you actually ordered? You go, no. Thank you for allowing me some time in your line. I think that was good for my soul. Have a great day and just drive off. That's your, that's your challenge. If you do that, I want to hear about it. I really think someone should do this. Jesus is responding to the disciples and he's saying, you don't need more faith. What you need is greater humility. You don't need more faith. You need greater humility. You need, like the servant, to see yourselves as unworthy of reward. And that's hard to hear for us. We like feeling worthy. But Scripture would say that we are unworthy recipients of grace and mercy, of life and love. Romans 5.8, God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were no use whatever to him. Not worthy of it, unworthy. The unimaginable humility of Christ looked at an unworthy people and forgave us again and again and again and again. He lived a life of perfection and repeatedly said it was just what he was here to do. People attempted to give him glory, and what did he do? It's just what I'm here to do, and he passed it on to the Father. He personified the lessons that he's giving us in this passage. And then he says he's making you worthy by association. What makes us worthy and remarkable and beautiful now is not who we were in darkness, but that we are in him in the light. And people will see this and go, wait, wait, wait. I don't like this because are you saying I'm not special? And I would say you are. But it has everything to do with the family you're in. It has everything to do with who Christ has called you, who he's brought you in to be. Your being special has everything to do with your family, and this should humble you. It's so beautiful. I think I have an illustration that will make this make sense. Um, consider Prince Harry. He's been in the news a bit. Prince Harry. Put Prince Harry up on the screen. Good job. Jackie's on this. Jackie's going to help me out here. 
This is Prince Harry. Maybe you recognize him, maybe you don't. Maybe you've heard his name, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't even know who he is. He's a prince. He's Harry. In actuality, this Prince Harry is just some regular British guy named Harry, right? Like, we can all agree that he wasn't born with, like, golden toes or something. He was just born like a normal other British guy named Harry. So why is he on Oprah, and why is he on the front page, and why is every story about Harry, and why, why Harry, 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 Harry? Why are we so in, enthralled with Harry? What makes him special? He's a royal. He's exceptional not because he was born different. He's exceptional because of the family he was born into. Once he was born as a royal, he became noteworthy, newsworthy, important. So then, so then compare that. Consider any other British guy named Harry. You have Harry, and then what any other British guy? I actually did this. I Googled it. I was like, any other regular British guy named Harry? And you wouldn't even know who he is. Put the other British guy up there. That's nobody. It's just some other guy named Harry. <laughs> just some weirdo with circular glasses. Just Harry anybody. Old British Harry guy. Nobody knows who he is. Nobody cares who he is. One of these guys is worldwide famous. Everybody knows him. The other one, I, I don't know, just Harry. That's Photoshop wizardry right there. Okay. You'll get it later. What's the point? The importance of the person is in which family they belong to and whose they belong to. Prince Harry is who he is because of his family, and the same is true of you. You are who you are because of whose you are. Humility for a follower of Jesus is simply seeing ourselves in light of Christ. Our humility is found in seeing ourselves in light of Christ. I am not special because of this, that, or the other. I am special because Christ has seen fit in my unworthiness to still bring me into his family, to still call me brother and friend, to still call me worthy of his love. To be adopted into the family of God is what makes us exceptional. And when we get that, that then drives us back to being humble. It reminds us whose we are. Then, once we know that, it is easy to avoid the entitlement that leads others into stumbling. Instead of putting myself first, I consider them instead. It gets easier to forgive people over and over instead of being entitled to revenge or to justice. We can follow Jesus in absorbing pain for the sake of redemption and reconciliation when we don't look for applause for simply living out our purpose, but rather find joy in bringing glory to the master. We embody beautiful humility. When we wake up daily in the depths of his beautiful humility, we can be grateful for a life of grace and goodness that is the total result of God's healing of our leprosy, that our pride and our sin and our pain and our shame has been undone and we were made clean and then we are freed to run back to the Savior and say, you did this, glory to God. Friends, we don't lack faith. We lack humility. And what we see here is Jesus showing us the way to grow our faith. When they say, can we have more faith? He says, no. Because we grow in faith when we shrink in self. We grow in faith when we shrink in self. When we find ourselves in proper view of the grace of God in our place in his family, when we shrink in self, then we grow in faith because we realize who's really in charge. We realize where power really lies. That's when we have our faith grow. It's through humility. 
So when I pray for our church, when I pray for our elders and our staff, when I pray for our church members and our friends, when I pray for people in our city, when I pray for new churches we know that are starting in our friends' churches around town, when I pray, my first prayer is humility. Bring us low. Make us humble. Remind us who we are and whose we are, and then use us in incredible ways. But if we start there, the glory doesn't fall on me for being smart or brilliant or skilled or whatever thing that someone might say. The glory falls on God for being above it all. Humility is the way of Jesus and the way to Jesus. Let's pray for humility together. Heavenly Father, thank you for calling us into your family. Thank you for including us as sons and daughters, for seeing fit while we were unworthy to adopt us and call us home. God, I pray that we would all find ourselves a little smaller, a little lower. God, that we would be a little bit lesser, maybe walk through the world a little bit slower. Not to make ourselves less, not to practice some false humility, but God, that we might make much of you. That as our souls get back in line with who you call us and who you've called us to be, God, we might be better able to hear your whisper. We might be better able to see opportunities to inflict beautiful, unworthy grace upon this world. Father, in a culture that is inviting us into greater entitlement, may we be countercultural in our radical humility. God, lead us with the courage that we need, that we might put others first in all things, that we might forgive over and over. God, at the end of the day, that we don't ask for your reward or your pat on the back, but we ask for your glory as a result of doing what we were called to do. Father, give us greater humility today. Grow our humility that we might live out our faith. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.